Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to our fellows career counseling. Uh, thanks for those of you who joined uh, and for the others who watched this afterwards. Um, this is usually more like an internal session between uh, our fellows and a few folks that they really, really wanted to chat with. Um, uh, and uh, we sometimes make these public too. Uh, but to give you a heads up, this will be a little bit of a, uh, not like one of our normal seminars, but where we talk a little bit about how is it exactly that someone get to got to where they are. Uh, and if people have questions uh, about that particular, like about particular career choices uh, or about tips of how to go about that, um, that uh, is also a session to do this in. So I'll start with a few questions just to warm us up. Um, and, uh, yeah, if those of you who are on the call, uh, want to eventually ask a few others, feel free to collect them in the chat and I can then afterwards, uh, help uh, facilitate uh, or raise your hand after we've done a few one. Uh, but for now, I just really want to welcome Sonia. Thank you so, so much for joining. Um, I remember when we first met at, it was at our Fawcett, um, longevity workshop now a few years ago, maybe already five years ago, I think around that time. Wow. Really? <laughs> time flies. Time flies, but you know, back in the days, there was really like very, very little, I think, just a community around longevity uh, in particular. And especially from an investment side, I think there was already done, like, you know, great research out there, but you're one of the first people I think that really, um, you know, like put their money where their mouth is and actually really grew that ecosystem in a really just kind of like continuous, uh, you know, continuously supporting, uh, kind of like, you know, pretty forward thinking. Uh, and meanwhile, also like, you know, so pretty ecosystem providing way. Uh, and so that was really great. Thanks for that. And thanks for being so early on that. That definitely, I think, um, got a lot of projects to where they are right now. Um, I also want to say that you didn't only do that. You also wrote a book, I think, to really just help people see the vision of the long-term potential of longevity. And I think that actually made a big difference because those are still the questions that you get asked most of the time about longevity. And you're now on Foresight's board, which we're incredibly happy about, um, as well as on the board of a few other really wonderful organizations. So you've had a really wonderful career trajectory already. So I think there's really something for everyone in, in this. Um, and perhaps, you know, just to, um, you know, bring people up to speed a little bit, I would love to uh, you know, know a little bit more, like what are you focused on now roughly? And, you know, how is it that you kind of like got to where you are, um, uh, got to where you are today? Sure. Um, well, uh, let's see. Uh, what am I focused on now? I am, I'm spending most of my time, uh, investing in longevity companies. Uh, and I'm doing that through my own company, 100 plus capital, where I angel invest my own money. Um, and then I'm also working with, um, I just joined Portfolia, which is a, um, a group of, um, women investors. Uh, and I'm leading, I'm one of the lead, uh, investors in their active aging two fund. Uh, so I'm doing that. And then I'm also an advisor with, uh, Felicis Ventures and BioVerge, uh, which are two, um, investment VC firms here in, in Silicon Valley. So. I'm doing that. Uh, and then I'm also spending a decent amount of time uh, helping the Alliance for Longevity Initiatives, which is a new 501c4 that's aimed at uh, moving the longevity agenda forward uh, on, on the political spectrum. So, um, you know, for the longest time, uh, people in Congress really weren't super aware of, of the, the possibilities uh, for lifespan, for health span. Health span extension. Um, and, uh, so now we're working to help educate them and, uh, you know, get more money for, for longevity research and also try to make, uh, make the pathways for getting longevity therapies approved, uh, a little bit better for, for entrepreneurs. So we're working on all those things right now. And, um, and I have a background in public policy. So, 
since I have a background in public policy and I know a lot about longevity, uh, <laughs> the Alliance for Longevity Initiatives, um, it's sort of a, a group that makes sense for me to be part of. And so that's what I'm spending my time doing that and, and longevity investing. Um, so I guess you also want me to go over how I got here. Uh, ideally, yeah. I, and uh, if you don't mind before that, I would love to know a bit, you know, given that A4LI is a, um, also a lobbying organization, right? And Foresight, for example, is uh, like a 501c3, so a research org. Like, are there any particular differences uh, that you see, like just from an organizational perspective? I mean, like you have a lens into, you know, VC and like really like the, the corporate world, then into, into lens of like different types of, you know, like nonprofit arrangements. Even. So I think it would be interesting to know just like, you know, wearing different heads. What do you see are like differences in their, in, in the way that these orgs, you know, function in their, in their mission statements and so forth? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, they're all really important. Um, and I've, I've been involved with all of them, as you point out, which, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I think, uh, it, groups like the Foresight Institute, a 501c3 is a charitable organization, which is, you know, it has its focus to promote, um, to, to think really hard about these issues and educate people and get people involved. And you do that really well. Um, and I'm happy to be part of it. Uh, and then the 501c4, the Alliance for Longevity Initiatives is more of a, like you say, a, it's a lobbying group where we can directly reach out to politicians um, and try to get them involved in actually advancing the cause of longevity through legislation. So, um, you know, that's the Foresight Institute doesn't talk to Congress people about legislation, but um, the Alliance for Longevity Initiatives can, um, and they do it based on the knowledge that they get from places like Foresight. So it's all, it's like this virtuous circle. And then, of course, with investing, um, you know, people who are investing are investing in companies, in, at least in long jumpy space, are investing in companies that can help uh, people live longer and healthier lives. So it all, the whole thing, the whole ecosystem works together. And I have a little foot and a little piece of my foot in every, uh, every space. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting like supply chain, you know, you do the full stack kind of to some extent. <laughs> um, exactly. Okay, wonderful. And, um, you know, I know that you also came from the publishing angle really before that. Could you share just a little bit of like how it is that you got uh, to your particular focus where you are today? Sure. Um, so I'm originally Canadian and I moved here in 1999, a long time ago when uh, when the internet, uh, this whole internet thing was booming. <laughs> and back then, Congress didn't know anything about the internet or technology. And so when I first came for a job uh, working at a, a think tank in San Francisco, I was director of the um, Department for Technology Studies. And one of my uh, tasks at the time was to help educate, not lobby, but to help educate Congress people about um, the public policy issues involved with new technologies, these new technologies that they didn't know very much about. And so there's, back then, people were just thinking about internet taxes and um, telecommunications and antitrust and, um, uh, boy, um, digital, digital cash, right? It was digicash was a big thing to think about back then, right? And of course, we've come a long way since then. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I got here in 1999 at the height of the internet boom and started working on those things at a think tank. Um, and around 2000, 2001, I started getting interested in nanotech because this, National Nanotechnology Initiative had been passed. And, um, you know, both President Clinton and then President uh, uh, Bush uh, were both very supportive of this thing called nanotechnology, 
that was going to change the world. And uh, and I figured, well, if these presidents are so interested in nanotechnology, which was shocking, actually, given that uh, most of the people in Washington, D.C. weren't super um, educated in uh, in in high tech things like that at the time. Um, I thought, well, I better start learning about this. And that's how I found the Foresight Institute, <laughs> because it used to be called the Foresight Institute for Nanotechnology. And um, I showed up at a few meetings. And I think I, besides Christine Peterson, I might have been the only woman there. <laughs> Things have changed a lot since then. It's not at all like that anymore. Now it's probably 50-50. But um, back then, it was a little bit different. And uh, But I started showing up at these meetings. And uh, I was super interested on and all these cool tech people I was meeting who knew so much about things that were so small and uh, and how these small things were going <laughs> to change our lives. And uh, so, yeah, so that's how I found Foresight. And um, yeah, and, and, and nanotechnology actually sort of sparked my interest in the longevity space as well, because, you know, I started reading about all these, these little smart bombs that could be uh, created that could go inside the body and like kill cancer and um, you know, nanomedicine and all of this kind of stuff. And so I started really digging in. And then I just, once you dig in, then you, I discovered all of these other things that were happening in the longevity space and the biotech space that were clearly going to change the world. And, you know, why, while they hadn't, um, you know, hit the front pages of the newspaper, it was clear that at some point they would. And so I started really digging into that and at the time, I was writing a couple of columns for a couple of different uh, outlets, uh, Tech News World and um, Tech Central Station. And, um, yeah, I sort of decided to start making longevity and health span extension sort of one of my topics. And so I started writing about it in little bits and pieces. And then a friend uh, came to me one day, a friend who I guess everybody sort of knows about these days, <laughs> um, my friend Peter Thiel. Uh, you know, we were having dinner one night and he said to me, he's like, you know, you're writing all these short pieces about longevity. What you should really do is take all of them, put them into a big book and, you know, and write a book about, um, you know, how, how this could change the world. And I thought, well, that's a great idea. And so I took his advice <laughs> and put together a, a book proposal and um, found a publisher and, and wrote 100 plus um, what became 100 plus uh, how the coming age of longevity will change everything. And, um, and that became a bestseller when it came out. And I was on book tour for over a year, traveling all over the world, um, talking about um, how health span, uh, how it's not a crazy idea. Because back then, you know, when in 2011, when it was published, it was still a little bit crazy or a little, people hadn't really thought about the idea of uh, delaying aging or slowing, slowing aging, stopping aging, and, and the idea that we could actually repair human beings. I mean, that was just something that was really, really new to them. I don't want to say crazy because, you know, it's not crazy, <laughs> but, but it was something brand new. And, um, and I feel like that work that I did back then had a big impact. Um, I went around, you know, I was, I talked to the Wall Street Journal. I talked to New York Times. I talked, I was all over the place. Um, and, uh, and I think I wound up changing a lot of minds about, because the thing is, is the science had finally come to the point where it was real. You know, it's like for the longest time it was, it was in the lab and it was sort of working, but, but by the time I had written the book, there were, there were enough big successes, you know, in, in tissue engineering and in, 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 in all these various, um, 
areas that uh, that it was clear that this was something, you know, this was something real and it was going to change the world. Uh, and so I went around doing that. And um, then after that, I it was a long book tour. And at that point, the science had moved so quickly sort of out of the lab and into patients that I thought it might be time for me to write a second book on you know, the real human beings who've been uh, helped by all this new technology, how their health has been extended because of all these um, amazing scientific uh, innovations. And so my plan was to go write a book about patients. And around the same time, um, I started doing dish walks with a number of friends. And one of my friends, Sunil Rajaraman, uh, is an entrepreneur, and he had started this company called Scripted. Uh, and, um, which was a company that, uh, basically hired out freelance writers at, you know, like if you're a big company like G or Ford or something, or you want, you want, you don't want to have to hire people to write your blog posts. You might outsource your blog post writing to a company like Scripted. Um, anyway, so he, he started this company, it got really big and then, um, and then he was sort of pushed out and he was looking for something new to do. And he, uh, he, had this idea to start a media company and he sort of, uh, he sort of tricked me into, into helping him. <laughs> he, he said to me, he's like, well, you know, you're a great writer and I'm just sort of looking for someone who could be my editor in chief for a little while. just kind of part time, you know, you wouldn't do that much. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll help you while I'm writing my next book. And somehow that turned into me be, becoming co-founder <laughs> of Unsugarcoat Media um, but it turned out to be a great blessing. And I'm, I'm happy that it happened because, you know, I, I joined, uh, as co-founder of Unsugarcoat Media and our main property was a bold italic, which had nothing to do with longevity, by the way. It's a, a magazine aim, aimed at millennials. And I became editor in chief of that, uh, which I did for a year and, and helped manage, uh, you know, writers. At least it was a daily publication and we published twice daily and there were at least 40 writers who were working for me. And so we started this company and, you know, we went to a half-time job. Oh, it was, it was crazy. Um, but it was fun. It was fun working with all these, um, creative young people. And, and it was also fun problem solving a new company. So it's like, well, how many servers do we need? And how do we, how do, how do we make money out of this? Is it advertising? Is it sponsorships? Is it, you know, the way, all the things that you had to think about when you were starting a new company, right? And all the legal issues and all the, you know, there was so much to do in a startup. And it was me and Sunil and we were very lean. And then we sort of had all these other freelancers working with us. And so we started it, we ran it, um, and then we eventually sold it. And that was a great experience for me for, you know, I felt like I went to Silicon Valley University, you know, <laughs> I got to do the, you know, start, run, finish kind of thing. And and now I really understand uh, the entrepreneur's journey, which I think makes me a better investor because I've been there and I've actually sort of done it, right? Um, so that that was really great. But then I decided, well, this has taken me really far afield from what I was actually doing, <laughs> which was trying to change the world and extend health span for everybody. And uh, so I'm like, okay, well, I, I have to get back to my mission. Um, but But it was a nice break. It was a nice Sometimes it's good to just stop when you're hyper focused on something. Sometimes it's good to just stop and take a break and do something completely different. And then when you come back, you have a fresh brain. Um, and so I feel like that's what that did for me, which was also like really, really useful. Um, so yeah, then I came back and I was looking, 
for something new to do. I was going to go back to the book and uh, um, I talked to my agent and explained to him, you know, what I wanted to do. And he said, oh, Sonia, you know, let me talk to the, let me talk to the publishers. He came back and he said, well, I've talked to them. The publishers really love you because they were very happy with the success of my last book. And they're like, well, but they don't think you should do the patient book because somebody else is already writing that. And I'm like, oh, so that was sort of disappointing. And he's like, but they want you to do a self-help book. Why don't you write a self-help book for like how to stay healthy? And I was just like, no, 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 no. That, that, that is not what I want. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to join join that. There's already enough people doing that. Um, and so then I was like, I was sort of just floating. And I went for lunch uh, probably just a few days after that, actually, at Indie Bio. Uh, my friend Ryan Bethenport, who started Indie Bio, was there. And um, he was running Indie Bio at the time. And we went out for lunch. And over lunch, he sort of looked at me and he's like, I have a secret. He's like, can I tell you? I haven't told anyone else yet. And I was like, wow, this is great. I can't wait to hear your secret. Yes, tell me. And he's like, I want to start a company. He's like, I might leave Indie Bio and I might start a company. Let me tell you about my company. And he told me about his company. And I thought it sounded fantastic. It was a great idea. And I, and so I said to him, um, oh my God, Ryan, that's amazing. I will invest in your company. And he couldn't believe it. <laughs> he's like, wow, that's amazing. He's like, you're my first investor. And, and he's like, I didn't know you were angel investing. And I'm like, well, I'm not really. I just, I love this idea. And, you know, I'm, I, and I love you and you're a great uh, individual and I will support you. And so he was super excited. And from there, it sort of, it wasn't long after he left Indie Bio and then, you know, raised a bunch of money from other people. Uh, but then he also went around telling everybody that he knows and he has a huge network um, that I was an angel investor and they should talk to me. <laughs> And I suddenly had all these people um, who I might have actually known anyway, but they didn't think of me as an investor. They thought of me as an author and somebody, you know, I was also involved in Singularity University uh, around that same time. And I, you know, I helped start Singularity University. And um, so I knew a lot of people in that uh, group and, um, and we're just sort of got around that, you know, Sonia Harrison is investing now. And I suddenly had all this deal flow and it was incredible. And I was just like, and and it was kind of that time, that moment in time where I sort of realized, wow, like this space is investable now. There's real companies now. And maybe I should be spending my time helping those companies and investing in those companies rather than just, you know, writing about them, right? I've already written about them. Maybe, maybe I don't need to do that anymore. Maybe I need to do something else to help, um, help this mission get accomplished, right? The mission of extending health span. So I started 100 Plus Capital, and I've been making small angel investments since, and that's how I got into investing. I, this is a really long story, but I'm sort of an accidental investor in some ways. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't wake up one day and say, I want to be an angel investor. Like, that's not how it happens, right? I mean, you sort of, I think to have a good career, you sort of just have to follow your path, and then you wind up in the right place. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I guess almost like every bit of the way was kind of, to some extent, necessary, you know, like the vision setting to the book, then, you know, this kind of experience of like how it actually is to kind of scale up or like to first start a startup and then scale up and then kind of like bring it full circle and like combining both to start investing or use it for your, for your thesis. Um, okay, that's uh, really wonderful to hear. I think, um, yeah, it's, I think it's always interesting, you know, how people start and like, you know, end up on the path that they're on. Um, and, and I think oftentimes it, you know, they're like 
in hindsight, often the different pieces have like a specific use uh, purpose and uh, when you look back at them, but it's not always quite obvious, I think, from the beginning. Um, I wanted to see, because we have a few people here on the call that uh, may still be in academia or in, like at least kind of like are adjacent, and from a few of them, you know, I, I could at least imagine uh, are potentially uh, at least working on something that could be interesting to spin out. Um, and I really wonder, you know, like, ha do you have any experience with this at all? Like, you know, in uh, in your kind of time of investing, do you like wh what kind of stages do you focus on, like, roughly? And if so, you know, like, what uh, kind of like makes you think about uh, a good company that perhaps may still be in academia or at least have academic ties? I know that IndieBio, you know, was al always also pretty big on this kind of like pairing uh, folks that are doing research with uh, a potential founders or like even making them founders. Uh, and so like, you know, kind of that intersection, you've seen so much of that. Um, you know, what do you think of this intersection of like just having uh, something that is like uh, just ready enough to uh, potentially spin out? Do you have any tips for doing that or like you know, any experience with that that could be helpful? Right. Yeah. Well, I invest in seed, which is always and sometimes pre-seed, which is really early. It's the craziest place to invest because <laughs> there's the most risk. Right. Um and but I love it because there's uh there's a lot of opportunity to really get involved and to really help the founders. And so uh, more opportunity at those at that stage than there is at uh later stages. So um yeah, I mean I think uh advice you really need to make sure that what you're doing is can be a product, right? That it's not just a science project. And sometimes it's unclear um to the scientists whether or not they're what they're doing is still a science project or if it's a product. And sometimes it's unclear to investors too. I mean, um, you know, I'm on the board of the of the Teal Foundation as well. And we had this program, um, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was called uh breakout labs. And it was meant to be that uh we funded it was a funding to help people in that in-between space where they're more than a science project, but they're not really a company yet. And so they were in that kind of valley where they just needed a little extra bump before they could become uh, a company. And so we did that for quite some time. And then uh, Lindy uh, Fishburne, who uh, ran the program at the time, has now started Breakout uh, Ventures, uh, which is a full-on VC firm. And she's doing seed through series. I don't know what she's doing now, B, maybe C, C through B. Um, and she's invested in a, in a number of those, uh, companies that have come out, of, that came out of that program, but she's, she's investing in the, in the investment space now. And she's not just doing that valley part, but, um, I guess all of this is to say that before you try to turn your project into a company, you really need to make sure it's a company, otherwise it won't succeed. And, and the way you can figure out, and so now you're probably sitting there thinking, well, how do I know that? <laughs> right. And I think the way you figure it out is you go around and you talk to people, right? Um, you maybe you talk to other scientists and see what they think about the viability of your work. And maybe you talk to some investors and some people in the business space and try to figure out if they think it's marketable yet. Um, and from all that feedback, you kind of just piece it all together and figure out if you're ready or not. So it's a lot of talking, which I know some scientists don't really like to do, but it's it has to be done. And do you have any opinions that it's solely five not if like um you'd recommend them becoming the founder or um more like a scientific advisor? Because I know that you know many bio VCs have like very different theses on that. 
um, on like, you know, what, 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 you know, should the scientists remain the scientists uh, or, you know, should they actually jump into the founder role as well? I don't know if you've seen that work well or, or not so well for previous uh, projects. Well, from my experience, I'd say it's really rare for a scientist to also be a good CEO because the skills of a good scientist are very different from the skill set of a good CEO. Um, some people can pull it off, uh, and I have seen it happen, but it's really rare. And, you know, it's very frustrating from an investor's perspective when a scientist who is clearly doesn't have the skills to be a CEO is trying to be the CEO and just won't um, – won't make room for somebody else to come in and and help with the with the project of the company, um, and so that that often creates failure for for those people, and it, and it's very sad to see because you're like, wow, the science works. Just get a real business person, and you'll be off to the races. Yeah, yeah, I I definitely I hear on this. Um, I uh, Dana from Break Adventures. She's now also joining a Vision Weekend, uh, by the way. Right uh, in the NeuroTech track, I think they have a, a really wonderful neurotech focus arm uh, and so um yeah so i'm curious to um you know a few projects that should be discussing them and so and i think i'm, a few I'm of- an lp in breakout ventures as well I'm, i also invest in uh in vc firms and i'm an lp in that in that one they just had their annual meeting it was fantastic oh so wonderful they're, they're okay. doing good work yeah 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 a few of the bits that you mentioned were like really exciting so i think for a few of the people that are on the call that will be going to vision weekend san francisco Dana and Sonia, I think, will also uh, be at that one. Um, okay, well, I mean, you already, I guess, you know, we touched on one of them, but I would be curious if there's any, you know, kind of like other do's or don'ts, like, you know, just general bits that you've seen, you know, like, I guess, like common mistakes or also common things where you like, whenever you see this, uh, you know, you um, you kind of like your eyes, um, your eyes brighten up, like are there specific bits in like either in pitch decks or in like you meet a founder that, you know, either give you like a strong hunch that there could be something amazing versus uh, a little bit of a hunch to pull back perhaps from the involvement. Are there, you know, are there any generalities like that? Yeah, no, there definitely are. Um, I think the biggest thing is, well, one of the biggest things that I look for is focus. How focused is the entrepreneur on what they're doing, right? So if someone, this happened to me recently, if someone comes to me and they're like, yes, I have this great idea for a company. Here's what I'm going to do. And, and it looks amazing, blah, blah. And they take you through that. And then they end and they're like, oh, and I have another company that I'm doing and I'm doing this and this and this. And then I'm going to do this. And it's like, oh, no, you're not. You're not going to do all those things. You're going to try to do all those things and you're going to fail because you don't have the discipline and focus to stay on track and do one thing. And so it's really important that whatever you choose, you are really committed to it and you're committed to that thing. And you don't try to do 10 things because if you try to do 10 things, you're going to fail. You, ha- you have to do one thing and do it really, really well. Um, so that's a big one. I think the other thing I would say if you're going out and talking to investors um, is to be really open about who you are. Um, as an investor, I like to hear about the background of the people who I'm, you know, might invest in. I want to know if they you know, grew up with a single mother, or I want to know if they, you know, immigrated from another country and had issues coming in. And I want to know, I want to know all of these things that made them who they are. I want to see that they've had challenges in their life and they've overcome them. Um, And so those kind of people tend to stick, stick with it because the thing about being an entrepreneur is it's really, it's hard. I mean, you hit roadblocks all the time. And if you don't have the grit 
to continue on and move forward, then it just won't work. And it's, you're not a, you're not a good bet for me, right? My, my good bets are people who have encountered challenges, really hard challenges and still made it. Yeah. I once went to like a kind of collective founders, um, group therapy session where they kind of like all just kind of spilled their beans on all the insane things that they're dealing with every day. And it was, um, it was pretty, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty eye opening because I think oftentimes we don't really talk about that because, you know, or especially like we're not super incentivized to talk about it while it's happening. Um, because it always has to be shiny from the outside. Uh, but you know, I, I, it is just incredibly difficult, I think, from, uh, from, from the inside, from the inside view. Um, and do you think that, you know, these things like from the kind of like stack of, I guess, like entrepreneurs, uh, you know, like early stage founders and so forth that you've seen, have there been any changes like, you know, throughout? Um, when you started investing, you know, have people like, is there like a general kind of like change of, um, you know, change of focus perhaps or change of like general vibe in terms of people, uh, that are coming in? Like, you know, have there been any kind of interesting paradigm shifts that have made it, uh, um, that have made it through, throughout the industry that, you know, could perhaps be helpful for people to have the historic backlog in mind as they're entering, uh, the shield? Well, it's definitely different now than it was. I would say six years ago was when it really when was when this area became investable, and it's changed quite a bit from then. Um, you know, now you see uh, now you see founders from all sorts of areas. You know, not just not just the core science. I mean, I see AI people coming from AI, people from coming from psychology, people coming from people coming from all different areas who are interested in getting involved in the longevity agenda. And so that's definitely different. Um, let's see. I mean, there's been a lot of trendy things that have happened and, you know, and, and, but that's true of every, every area that something becomes trendy and then it gets replaced by some other trendy thing and, and on and on and on. And, um, you know, the thing about this being a new area is that, and I don't think we've, have a really great example yet, but we will at some point, is there's going to be some big thing that everyone thought was amazing and put tons of money into it and it got a huge valuation and then it just crashes, right? Um, so we're going we're gonna to see that too. And so we have to be prepared for it, but it doesn't mean that the area is not worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, even just from a foresight lens, you know, you first said like, molecular nanotech and then that kind of term even got grabbed for something that it really quite wasn't uh or like wasn't at least with the um, precision that folks had in, intended earlier the same with ai you know you first said like ai was really just des um, describing agi and then folks came in and you know like piled on uh, on the ai trend back then and then ai had to rebrand as artificial general intelligence so i think you see all of these like interesting kind of like um you know trajectories and and like, it's, it's more like an S curve, right? Where you'd have like a big bump and then you have like a bit of stagnation and a big bump again. But I think, again, that probably speaks also to the grit that you recommended people having, uh, of, you know, having to pull through also in like hard times, like bear market times, what, what have you. Um, and, uh, and so forth. So, yeah, I think, you know, that historic lens is definitely something that I've benefited from just from looking at what that archives <laughs> to see like, just even like how kind of like, yeah, just how challenging uh, I think often tech development is. Um, okay, wonderful. We already have a question here, and uh, that's usually uh, again. I, I just repeat the algorithm. <laughs> usually in the uh, readings, it's always you can stop me from talking by uh, raising your hand and asking a question. Um, and so we'll go with Matthias first. Maybe you want to say a few words also about yourself, if you care. So Sonia has a bit of a context, 
And then if anyone else would like to ask a question, feel free to raise your hand. And otherwise, I'll get back to you. Matthias, they just feel uh, yeah. Hi. Hello. Uh, hello, Sonia. So this was this was great. Uh, I could ask I guess, lots of questions, but I'll focus it to one. Um, yeah, just a little bit about me. So yeah, I'm a foresight fellow. I'm on the sort of intelligent cooperations track. Uh, so I'm mostly sort of in computer science and math kind of related things. Um, but so so the question I guess I have is so you've so, so based on the story you've told, you seem to have done like sort of a lot of talking about what was kind of at the time just like this sort of unusual idea sort of longevity. And this was with sort of policymakers and, and investors and all kinds of people. And now you're also kind of on the other side of uh, just sort of seeing like basically people kind of telling about their projects to you. And I'm just sort of curious. So as one, like let's, let's say this sort of somebody just, I don't know, has like an unusual project or an unusual idea. What is like the intention one should have when one is kind of talking about it? So like, um, what, like basically, you know, I mean, just, just as, as an example of what you sort of said, like, why was it important to turn your essays into a book as opposed to, I don't know, just sort of having them, having them be essays? And, um, I guess all sorts of things like that can basically be quite a story and things. So I'm sort of curious about that. All right. That's a good question, actually. Um, I like unusual ideas. If you have one, I'd love to hear it. Um, but I think that when you have something, uh, an idea that's different, um, that really can change the world, you have to be careful with it. Um, and I've always been very interested in this. I've always been interested in how, how words matter. And you really have to be careful about how you talk about something. So before I wrote my book, almost nobody was talking about health span. Everybody in this community was talking about longevity and we want to live forever and we never want to die and we want, we're immortalists and, you know, all of this really extreme language that scared people. And that is not a good way to get supporters. You don't want to scare people away from you. <laughs> so if you have an idea that's unusual and strange and that people are kind of going to go, huh, you really need to choose your words carefully and make sure that you're communicating the benefits and the value of your idea rather than the, um, you know, the shock value. You don't want to shock people. That doesn't work. It makes them run away and it makes them not like you. <laughs> and you, that's not what you want. You want people to join your cause because we, you know, we can never, I mean, this is one of the things I've learned in my many years of doing things is that you can't do anything alone. I mean, you can do. You can do a lot of stuff alone. You can put your head down and you do a bunch of coding and put your head down and figure out some stuff in the lab. And you can do a lot. Your effort matters. But ultimately, if you want something to really take off and be big and be world changing, you need other people and you don't get other people by scaring them away. So you really need to choose your words carefully. I guess that's that's my my advice. Um, there's a really interesting phrasing, I think, from on Less Wrong on the blog, spend your weirdness point wisely. Um, you know, if you're out there talking about like one thing that is, you know, off the mainstream, don't nestle all of your other non-mainstream beliefs in there, but like just focus on one thing. If you can change people's perspective on this one thing, you've probably done a lot. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's an interesting one to hold into our own heads, I think, because like, especially I think in the Bay, uh, oftentimes, you forget, you know, what's even weird because you know, people have a very high tolerance for it. And then you, you go out again into the world and you just realize how, how weird you are or like how, how at least like, you know, you have to like, at least like rephrase a few things and maybe focus on a few rather than a few other bits. And it's, it's, it's an interesting, I think, cultural 
uh, culture shift too. Well, and and on that point, Allison, I mean, I think that that speaks to why so much innovation comes out of the Bay Area is because we have a high tolerance for weird things, right? And we we're able we're able to sift through the the weird bad versus the weird good because there's both. Just because you're weird doesn't mean you're good, but there's a lot of weird good stuff in with the weird bad stuff, and we celebrate. So we sort of celebrate weirdness here, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, we certainly do. Um, I don't know much as if you have another one. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, okay, okay. The, then, oh uh, yeah, sorry, I, I don't know, I don't know how 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 you wanted to do this, but uh, so um, okay, maybe to just to just uh, okay, um, well, okay, so so one question I have just as a follow up to what you said there. So in the case of longevity, for example. What was like the pattern? Because like my impression is that it's in a very different place now, say, than it was 10 years ago. What was the pattern of kind of sort of uh, accumulating support for it? And what were kind of the most seminal moments that, that perhaps happened? Just, uh, yeah, that's one thing I'm curious about. Well, I think I, you know, I'm biased, obviously, but I think my book had a big impact. Um, and I think the biggest impact, well, maybe two things. The two biggest impacts that my book had were helping to change the conversation. So we started talking about health span, not lifespan. That was, and I really made a huge point of that. Every single interview I did, every single talk I did, I said, this is not about longevity. This is about extending health span. This is about allowing people to live longer and healthier lives. We're not looking for some crazy Dorian Gray thing. We're like, we're living really long and like we're like weird and crazy, right? We, we want to be, healthy so we can be around and do the things that we all want to do to be with our friends and family and make the world a better place, right? And so I spent a lot of time saying that message over and over and over again. And I, so I think that the pattern is choosing the right words that are res that will resonate with people and then repeating them and then making sure other people repeat them. It's not just you. You need the Foresight Institute to repeat them. You need um, the other people, the other people involved in this area to repeat them. You need all of these people echoing you. And so you just need to repeat, repeat, repeat. And then it just becomes as if that word has always, always existed. And we've always talked about it that way. So that, that's the pattern there, I think. And it's a political technique. They do this in politics all the time. Like changing. He gave me a great example the other day, speaking of this, um, because I, I really love thinking about how to change people's perspectives and how to persuade people. Um, and somebody has given me the example of, um, you know, when, when people just talked about the estate tax, it was boring and no one cared about it. But once they called it the death tax, wow, suddenly people sat up and paid attention and hated the death tax. And so what you call something and how you call it and whether or not people are repeating it really, really matters. And how does one sort of find out like what a good approach to that is like is, is it you sort of like for example this health fan thing like is it just one kind of tries various things and see how they resonate like what was sort of the approach there we brainstormed about it a lot and christine peterson was involved in that she's really good at this kind of thing um yeah no i spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people to think you know because at first i didn't like health span because i thought it was kind of boring and it didn't really flow off the tongue but we could not come up with anything better and then we just decided that was going to be it. And, um, you know, but we, I spent a good deal of time thinking about whether or not that was the right word to be using. And so it's really just sort of all your little mini focus groups with people, you know, and not just people who are in your community who like weird ideas, 
you have to go ask your Aunt Jane what she thinks about this and your grandmother and your, you know, I don't know, the guy at the corner store, if he's ever heard of something like this. And what do you think that is crazy? And you have to ask different people from different walks of life and see what they think of things. And again, that's where the community comes into this. You can't do it by yourself. I think uh, Christine is the one that I think coined open open source. Or, yeah, open source mm-hmm. rather than I think it was like, what was it, free software before or something like that, where people really couldn't quite pass out that it wasn't like that you didn't have to pay for it, but that it was just free and right. available. Yeah, the, um, words, so the, the, th- the other thing about picking the right word is it has to be true, right? That's why the free thing didn't work. It has to be true. Yeah, there's also, I think, similar uh, efforts you find within um, cryonics and biostasis, you know, that kind of like um, remodeling thing, then um, crypto and Web3, you know, crypto remodeling itself to Web3 uh, as, as just a more academic, perhaps like, you know, easier digestible term than crypto, which, you know, you really like, I guess, more associated now with uh, with scam. But I feel like, you know, you see that all the time where suddenly, and, and then it's always interesting, there's this time where people are still using both terms and then like a few months later people switch to one right. <laughs> you know i think uh, you know words are really like shedding points in this regard but matthias do you have a specific area that uh you're thinking of branding uh no i mean uh, my 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 question actually just sort of comes from from just uh uh well again so so, so again we, we since we are like i was at this uh, foresight workshop just recently uh and, and i really got into this idea okay i should i should sort of you know, present more about the things I do and sort of uh, in general, um, sort of stuff like that. And, uh, again, I'm just sort of thinking about like things that are kind of disorienting or I guess unclear about that. Um, I mean, uh, another thing that, that is often sort of like people are often sort of say, okay, like sort of know your audience, like know who you're talking to basically. But, uh, again, you know, very, very often one actually doesn't know that much about the audience. And it is, for example, unclear how one kind of finds out about like who the audience is and what they care about. And for example, that's another thing that is sometimes unclear to me. Like, is that just like another thing that gets built through experimentation or like, like, is that another thing? Yeah. Well, I think if you don't know your audience, you have to assume the lowest standard, you know, you have to assume that they're going to just be random people and speak as if you were speaking to random people. And then if there are experts in the crowd, they're going to, they're going to get it anyway. Right. Okay. But another question, which is sort of a bit unrelated to this, but just like, so you mentioned this thing about sort of scientists and CEOs. What are usually like the skills that scientists lack to be good CEOs? Um, sometimes they lack a willingness to compromise and to see uh, other points of view because they're typically generally really focused on one thing. And that serves them really well when they're doing the science, right? Like they're they're dogged and they're stubborn and they're like, they're just following the science and that's how they get the right answer right but you can't be like that with people you have to be more willing to work with people and compromise and come to a solution that and brainstorm different solutions that didn't work and um you know generally sort of i guess be more social <laughs> I mean, and that's not to say that scientists aren't social because a lot of them are it's just yeah, and, and it's a it's a multitasking thing. It's a you know it's a it's it's just a different person typically who who is a CEO. But like I said, sometimes it can be in the same person, and I've seen it. So it's you kind of have to judge it on a case by case basis. I uh, always 
found it interesting when, for example, um, whenever you're doing a thing, you're not really talking about it. Whenever you're talking about it, you're not doing it. And so there's this kind of weird um, relationship where I think, and what you said, is if you want to have something that is actually world-changing, you eventually need to have a lot of people know about it. But it, it always feels pretty insincere whenever you're talking at conferences about the thing. You're not actually at the moment, like actually working on it. And whenever you're actually making progress, no one really knows about it. And I feel like, you know, being uh, like, being willing to just go out and talk a lot about your project. I think that usually like from the CEOs that I know that, you know, have built really, uh, you know, really successful things, they're just out there all the time. You know, they bring it, it like at every point in the conversation, you know, they bring in the company, not in a way where it's like incredibly annoying, but like they always find a way of like making people aware that this is happening. And, and that is something that, you know, at least many of the scientists that I know of like feel sometimes uncomfortable with, you know? <laughs> Um, yeah, kind of like the cheerleader should be separate from the hero, right? Yeah. They should always the scientist doing the work and the CEO is a cheerleader going out and getting people excited about what's going on. Yeah, yeah, they they could definitely reach that. But, um, and, you know, while we're at it, like, what do you think, you know, of a difference between like uh, a good investor and a good entrepreneur? Because I think that many folks that have started out uh, as an entrepreneur eventually get into angel investing, right? Um, and then... Um, uh, but those still, still that are still, you know, somewhat different. But I think, you know, for folks that are a little bit later on, you know, that would be interesting to know as well. Like, do you see like a difference there between those two skill sets? Oh, yeah. They're very, very different. And a lot of entrepreneurs who go into investing sometimes absolutely hate it and then leave investing and go back to entrepreneurship. I've seen that many times. Um, it's, it's definitely a different thing. So, you know, you're, this is going to sound weird, but investors tend to be more risk adverse and entrepreneurs are the ones who are really taking the big risks, right? Um, and, you know, investors spend a lot of time listening uh, and less time talking, generally the good ones. Um, and, you know, entrepreneurs are the ones doing, right? Like you just made that point earlier. The entrepreneurs do, the investors are just there to support, Right. And so typically when entrepreneurs become investors, they get really frustrated because they want to jump in. They want to go and do that. They want to go and help with this product launch. They want to do that. But as an investor, you have to sit back and you have to be happy watching other people, you know, get the success and watching other people do the work. And it's great that you're making money along the way, but they're the ones who are going to really shine, right? They're going to take center stage. And so it's a very different personality. The investors are kind of back in the in the background watching, and the entrepreneurs are the larger than life people out there doing things. Yeah, I definitely know. I think a few uh, angels that have said buyers where they just kind of like basically become a co CEO of a company that they invest in or something. You know, that's like very involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At that point, it's like, well, you might just join the company and be done with it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they take the skin of the game thing very seriously, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm also curious, you know, have you seen uh, the investing uh, scene at all change a lot? I mean, like, you know, for one, um, you know, it is true that, you know, we're definitely in an in a interesting economic time right now. But I think for people, like, I mean, on the one hand, it would be interesting to know, like, a little bit of a larger time span. You know, how have you seen, like, the general investing landscape shift? Uh, over maybe since you've been involved and then you know in particular lately uh, i certainly know of many projects that are raising that are finding it harder right now um and if so you know is there anything in particular that um you know you can uh 
yeah, any insights that you may have on like how to navigate uh, these interesting times. Right. Yeah. It is, it's very difficult right now, um, for companies everywhere. Uh, you know, some investors will say, well, if you're a great company, you have nothing to worry about and no matter what the economy's like. But I'm telling you, there are a lot of great companies out there who are struggling because they're running out of runway and they can't raise. So I, the, the biggest thing right now is to have enough runway, uh, have enough cash to take you through to get through all your milestones so that you can raise the next round. Um, so that's that's what I'm focusing on telling uh, telling my companies right now is let's just make sure. And if you don't have enough runway, you need to cut back a little bit so you have more runway. Like it's, that's really really important. Is your goal as an entrepreneur is to stay alive. The goal of the game is to not get killed. You need to stay alive, and in order to stay alive, you need more runway, right? So that's it. Um, and that's it's it's really really tough right now. <clears throat> and who knows, it might get even tougher in the next year or so. So. Um, so that's the short term, uh, you know, the, in the long term, everything eventually shakes out. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I don't really know what to say, but it, it, was there something else you wanted me to say about the, the well, just, I think, I mean, since you've been investing, because I think these cycles, you know, kind of come and go. And at least for a few people that have talked to, they're like, well, now is a really great time to you know, get talent relatively cheap if you already have a company. And like, uh, you know, I think that there is probably like some benefits to the entire thing, but it's, yeah, I think, you know, you having perhaps seen like a few of these cycles or at least like, I don't know if it was quite the same, but like, uh, you know, are there specific bits where, you know, um, people can perhaps time their focus uh, better or something at the moment? Yeah, well, it's definitely easier to, you know, hire people for cheaper, right? And it's, it's better for, it's better for investors to get better valuations on companies. I mean, so like there's some upsides to a, a worse economy. I mean, it's the opposite. Like when everything is really, really hot and there's too much money around and, you know, it's, it's actually sort of worse the other way around where all these companies are taking so much money and they're higher, they're over hiring and they're, it, it, it creates this, um, this cycle where this, this atmosphere where there's no discipline and everything kind of just gets thrown all over the place. And that that's actually really bad for everyone. It's bad for the companies that are getting money. It's bad for the investors. It's bad for society because then things don't happen the way that they should. And um, so it's actually better if I, you know, it's better to have to really slim down and look at things and be disciplined and really focus on the goal. Um, you know, that said, it'd be nicer if we weren't quite so tight right now, but um but the hot, really hot market is is super bad. Yeah, I always also think it's interesting the amnesia that happens. Like people always forget about the last time that the markets were down, the moment that the markets are up. It's really, really interesting. I think you know that like we just can't hold it in our head that that this is yeah. those are cycles. Yeah, um, it's pretty crazy. Uh, okay, well, wonderful. Um, maybe you know just as a kind of. Uh, yeah, I, I guess from an interest point also for people that, you know, perhaps, and at least of a, I know of at least of a few fellows who are like, they could go down either way and they're trying to look for something that, you know, is just a little bit like, I guess, perhaps like still new and fresh on the horizon. So, okay, to provide my contact on this, we just reviewed our fellowship applications for next year. And um, we have never had, so last year at the end of December, we had as many applicants as we had this year by the beginning of October 
And so wow. we, um, sorry, we had doubled the amount of applicants as we had this year by the beginning of October. And so we closed the fellowship early this year. And one really big difference was also that we had a lot of folks that were in their teens. Um, uh, and that was for the first time. Uh, we had, Your I think, teens? over Is that what you said? in their teens. Yeah, in their teens. So, um, I think over, I think it was a little bit more than 30 applicants were in their teens that applied. And many of them are kind of in the state where, um, you know, they're considering dropping out and they're also considering, you know, their next, their next career move and they want to go into something that, you know, is like they're, they're pretty ambitious. They are pretty, um, uh, like pretty risk taking, I would say, just some of what I've seen from what they've already done. And so they are more at the stage where they could go anywhere still. You know, they haven't really specialized it even in a university degree. Um, and so, you know, are there any specific bits that you think are interesting for someone who's really at that blood young stage where they, you know, haven't even specialized very much yet? Um, are there specific areas that, you know, yeah, you want to pinpoint potentially as, you know, interesting bits to, to dive into? Well, the, yeah, that's great news that you have so many applicants. And it's also great to hear that there's lots of young, ambitious people interested in this area. I think um, you need more than ambition, though. You know, you, you also need to have, I'm not saying you have to have a university degree, but you need to have a really great idea. Um, and if you don't have a great idea, then you need to find someone who has a great idea and you need to partner with them. And then you can put all your energy into being ambitious over that idea. But um, ultimately, you can't get anywhere without good ideas. And so I think that's the, that has to be the foundation. And then the ambition and the focus comes next. Yeah, maybe that also speaks to the point that we sometimes discuss of, you know, it could be really interesting to more of the kind of founder, CEO, uh, support staff, investor matching um, that, you know, I think we do that a lot in the back end, you know, or like mostly like that's whenever we hook up fellows with mentors, that's often what we do. But um, but I think just having it be a little bit more explicit could be interesting. I think Nathan once did this like career fair for longevity, and I still think that that would be an interesting one to do. I know that we're doing some of that again at Vision Weekend. So, you know, um, our fellows will get an email just before. Um, and so if you're watching this before Vision Weekend, you should have gotten an email by now where we ask you uh, to choose uh, a mentor for Vision Weekend as well. Um, and uh, we have specific mentorship hours at Vision Weekend where you can go out and meet them. Um, but yeah, I think this, you know, kind of coordination game between... <laughs> folks that are searching for their new best thing where they can really focus on plus the ones with a great idea plus the ones that can actually like taste the bet. I think that coordination is still, um, it's, it's a lot of sticky still, but um, we could perhaps help with that a little bit. Yeah. And it's, it's really important. So I'm glad that you're doing it, Allison, because it's meeting the right people um, at the right time is like super important. So, you know, one of my mantras has always been to show up, <laughs> showing up helps. You know, when, when you can, you know, don't drop everything you're doing and just show up, but show up at the right places and show up to meet people because, um, if you don't, it's, it, you, you're, you're missing out. And so you really do need to connect with the right kind of people. Yeah. And I feel that when somewhat missing doing COVID and now bringing that back again, at least in the in-person settings is definitely, it's, yeah, it, it takes a lot to get the engine going again, but, but we're gradually getting there. Um, okay. Wonderful. We have like, we're in the final minute. So I don't want to, I want to be really mindful of your time. Uh, thank you so, so much for joining. Um, if you're watching this online on YouTube afterwards, um, or, or if you're a fellow, reach out to me in case you have any further questions. Thanks also a lot for your questions, Matthias. Uh, thank you so, so much, Sonia. Uh, this was really instructive for me too. So, uh, thanks a lot. I, I certainly learned a lot. 
Uh, and yeah, I can't wait to see many of you in person at uh, Vision Weekend San Francisco. Probably the one for all of us here. Thanks a lot, Sonia. It was really wonderful. Thank you. I was happy to be here. Thanks, Allison. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date. Or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.